Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory that lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not being removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose hearts. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is failed, it's failed to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Let's pray together. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Lord God, we come to you and we pray that you would shine that light now as your word is opened. Other people like me might be tired. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to listen. We might have other things rushing around in our hearts. Lord, quiet them. Help us to come and hear what you've got to say. Be with Andy as he speaks. Father, fill us with your spirits that we would see the Lord Jesus and be drawn to him. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.
Well, it's been a treat to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. been great to get to know some of you. Sorry. Well, I was going to say sorry for those I haven't got to know. You've actually had a lucky escape. But, uh, but yeah, it's been really good to be with you this weekend. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder whether you've got many ambitions left. Um, I, uh, when I was doing the, uh, the Q&A with the, uh, the young people yesterday, one of the uh, questions that they generously lobbed in was, how old are you? I made a really bad mistake at this point. I said, well, how old do you think I am? <laughs> Early 50s was the guess. I am actually 46. I mean, I know I look much younger. But, um, but at the age of 46, I've realised that my lifelong ambition of playing cricket for England, it's probably not going to happen at this point. It just dawned on me in the last 12 months or so. I don't know whether you've got any ambitions. It's always worth having an ambition that you know is going to succeed. An ambition where you're not going to be disappointed. This weekend we've been thinking about what I reckon is the best ambition to have. The best ambition is to be like Jesus, the most excellent of men. We thought on the opening night of that comment from the, the church leader, John Stott, in his 80s, I want to be a little bit more like Jesus. Here's the encouragement. If we're Christians, we will be. We will be. I actually missed this out in uh, 1 John we were looking at yesterday morning. But in 1 John you get this. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. Can you imagine an occasion like this where we're all still distinctly us and yet the perfect Jesus version of us? That'll be what the new creation's like. Or, you know, there's that famous verse in the Bible, in Romans 8, 28, where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And maybe it's a verse we can hold on to when times are tough. God is working for good. Interestingly, we don't often talk about this. The next verse explains what that good is. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, what God is doing in our lives is he's working all the circumstances we face that ultimately one day will be perfectly like Jesus. It's always worth having an ambition you know is going to succeed. We will be like Jesus one day. It is going to happen if we belong to him. But in this last session, I want to focus on how God does that. Because it isn't that we're just hideously unlike Jesus and then the end comes and suddenly at that point everything changes. That There will be a moment when everything changes. But actually God is doing that work now. He's doing that work here and now that we might be like Jesus. And that as churches where people are like Jesus, we might have an impact on the communities that he's placed us. And I want to look at that from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 this morning. Funnily enough, I've taught 2 Corinthians for years, and basically I kind of broke it down in the same sort of way. And because of that, I actually missed something. I missed the fact that in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, there are two ways in which we become like Jesus. So there, right at the end of chapter 3, so in verse 18, it talks about us being transformed into his image. At the end of chapter 3, we're going to see one way in which God is working to make us more like Jesus, that we might be courageous, Christ-like communities. And then right at the end of the 
passage we've looked at in chapter 4. In verse 10 and 11, it talks about the way in which the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. That his life may be revealed in our mortal body. And so two ways, one at the end of chapter 3, one chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Two ways in which God is making us like Jesus. Let's look at the first in chapter 3. We become like Jesus as we gaze on his glory. We become like Jesus as we gaze on his glory. Now, chapter 3 is all about a new covenant. That's to say a new serious agreement between God and people. It was promised centuries before Jesus in about 600 BC. The prophet Jeremiah is looking at God's people who are in an utter mess. They've sinned against God. They're going to be driven out of the country as a result of their sin. Jeremiah makes a a promise. God says, one day I'm going to make a new agreement. It's not going to be like this current agreement, which has led to God's people being driven out because of their sin. It's been an agreement where God lives within us and puts his word on our hearts where we'll all be able to say, I know God, and our sins will be totally forgiven. And Jeremiah promises this new agreement, and that agreement kind of kicks around for about 600 years or so, until one night, it's Passover time. And there's a man in Jerusalem, eating the Passover meal with his friends. And he takes some bread, and he takes some wine, And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he's basically saying, do you remember that promise? That promise that you'd be able to say, I know God. That promise that God's going to live within his heart. It's coming now. And Jesus' death on the cross opens up this glorious new agreement between God and his people. Where he lives within us. And all our sin is washed away. And in 2 Corinthians 3, basically Paul is saying, here are the privileges of that new covenant, the privileges of that new agreement. Here's what it's like to live after Jesus' death on the cross. And he says this new covenant, it's not about the stone tablets that Moses had the Ten Commandments on. It's about God's spirit coming to live within our hearts. It's what we saw yesterday morning. I will be in you. And here's the big thing. Paul says, do you notice... It's not about condemnation, it's about righteousness. Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? You know, by the way, if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to feel condemned all the time. I don't know you've noticed that, because let's be honest, most of us, if we're Christians, do you know that experience of just living with a kind of low-lying sense of guilt all the time? Am I the only one? That sense of, I'm just not as good a Christian as I should be, and I just permanently feel guilty all the time. And Paul is saying the great joy of being a Christian, this side of Jesus' death on the cross, is that we're righteous, not condemned. God has given us the perfect righteousness of Jesus. The way Jesus lived so perfectly, that's ours now. Because Do you remember we're joined to him? And so all that he's done is ours now. Christian isn't actually supposed to wander around feeling condemned all the time. Now, by the way, if you are feeling guilty, please don't sit and think, 
oh no, I felt guilty, and now I feel guilty about feeling guilty. <laughs> Actually, this is just a call to receive. To receive afresh all that Jesus has done. Which means we can go home saying, I'm at peace with God. Between God and me, it's okay. Not because of my record, because of what Jesus has done. It'd be great if we left here today with a sense of between me and God, it's okay. He gives us righteousness. But the main thing I'm heading towards is that promise in verse 18. Because the main benefit of this new agreement that Jesus won comes right at the end. We all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses went up and met with God. And as he met with God, the experience of seeing God in all his glory was so amazing that Moses' face shone. Went up to see God, and, and Moses' face shone. But the problem is it didn't last. It just faded away. In fact, he had to put a veil in his face because the Israelite people, they weren't supposed to see God's glory in Moses' face. And it was great, but all a bit half-hearted, really. As Paul is saying, the great privilege that the Christian has now under this new agreement is that we get to gaze on the glory of Jesus and we don't have to draw back. We can look at him and think on him. And Paul says that as we look on him and think on him, what the Holy Spirit does as we do that is he makes us like him. It's often been said that we often become like the person you admire. Do you see, I don't know, somebody who dresses in a particular way and you think, oh, that looks nice, and you begin to sort of imitate them. Mentioned uh, John Stott earlier. John Stott led a, a church in London at uh, the second half of uh, the last century. And it was a church, quite a big church. So there was uh, him preaching and lots of young people preaching as well. And it, it was often said that basically all the young preachers at this church in London will basically start sounding like him. You're using his mannerisms, using his sort of tone, using the kind of words that he used. Strangely, actually, none of the young preachers at the church I pastored ended up anything like me. But... Uh, but often we become like the person we admire. And that's what Paul is saying here. That actually as we look at Jesus, that's the way the Holy Spirit begins to make us like Jesus. We contemplate him. Happens as we read the Gospels and we read of him. Happens as we think about Jesus. Happens as we sing songs of praise about Jesus. We gaze on his glory the great privilege we have is of sort of being able to see Jesus and not having to draw back in guilt. We can look at Jesus and be made like him. I don't know where your favorite place is, the most beautiful place you, you can think of. One of my favorite places, actually not too far from here, is, uh, is Great Orm. Do you know where Great Orm is? Sort of up above, oh, some of them are getting very enthusiastic here, but up above London, no. That's great. It's not very good on a cloudy day, to be honest. But, but actually, on a day like today, you sort of go up there and the energetic people climb up and the sort of 
middle-aged people get a tram and you know you you kind of get to the top and and basically I love the sea and you're up there and you can sort of on a good day sort of look out towards Ireland and the Isle of Man and actually you can see the northwest coast and you know, it's just a stunning view sort of all around you and actually if you turn around you just see Snowdon and to be honest whenever I go up there I just want to keep if I can put it like that looking my eyes out you just want to keep looking and looking. And it's always painful to leave, actually, because it's just such a stunning view. And if that's stunning, what about the beauty of the one who made it? The greatest view in the universe is to gaze on the glory of Jesus. Yeah, we see him as a fragile baby. And we see the glory of his incarnation. We see him teaching the Sermon on the Mount and we see the glory of his wisdom. We see him make, meeting a leper. If, you, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And we see the glory of his compassion. We see him saying to the storm, calm, be still. And we see the glory of his power. We see him on the Mount of Transfiguration and we see the glory of his majesty. We see him weeping at the tomb of Lazarus and we see the glory of his humanity. We see him washing the disciples' feet and we see the glory of his humility. We see him in Gethsemane praying, not my will but yours be done. And we see the glory of his obedience. We see him hanging on the cross and we see the glory of his love. And we see him coming out of the tomb and we see the glory of his life. And now we see him at the right hand side of the Father and we see the glory that he will have forever and ever. And there is nobody like him. There's nobody who comes close to him. And the great privilege that the Christian has is just basically to keep looking and looking at Jesus. And seeing how glorious he is and majestic he is and wonderful he is. And there is nobody else like him. You do know you can never plumb the depths of Jesus. You can never think, I've got Jesus tapped. Yeah, I've seen all there is to see in Jesus. And that's why Paul's invitation is this. We, with unveiled faces, all behold, contemplate, look at the Lord's glory. And as we do that, we are changed. We're transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You see, as Jesus is glorious and we gaze on him, so we become more glorious. More and more like him. More and more, the people we will be forever and ever. One of the challenges sometimes for us as Christians and in churches, bizarrely, is we don't actually focus on Jesus that much. Yeah, I was just thinking of some, some of the things we talk about when we get together as church leaders, and bizarrely, we find all kinds of stuff to do about the state of the church and the state of the national church and how we're doing, and actually, funnily enough, not talk about Jesus very much. I was with a good friend of mine on Friday mornings, church leader, and actually both of us spent probably about the vast majority of our time together, you know, moaning. And actually, right at the end, it was, yeah, but Jesus is good, isn't he? And Jesus is wonderful. And Jesus is glorious. I remember a conversation a, a number of years ago, actually, with a, a friend of mine, and we were both just beginning to struggle in our Christian life a bit, and we were being honest about some of the struggles we were having, and my mate said to me, yeah, we know the answer to this, though, don't we, Andy? We know the answer to this. 
No, I'm saying, no, we don't. That's why we're having the conversation. But he said, no, no, go hard after Jesus. Go hard after looking at Jesus. Go hard after treasuring Jesus. Go hard after gazing at Jesus. That's the answer to this, isn't it? And he was right. I've never forgotten that conversation, actually. The great privilege of the Christian life is that we get to see Jesus. Now with the eyes of our heart, one day we'll see him face to face. And that's the way we become like him. Please, as we've done again and again across this weekend, our goal is to be like Jesus. Please don't think that's just about summoning up some great power and strength and bravery within us. We become like Jesus, we gaze on him. We contemplate the Lord's glory. That's why I've called this session Courageous Vision. It's the have, to have the courage to say, whatever else is going in life, however busy I am, however hectic I am, however busy church life is, we want to be courageous to say, above all else, we need to keep plumbing the depths of Jesus and seeing how glorious he is. We behold the Lord's glory and are transformed to be like him. And then there's the second thing as we move into uh, chapter 4. Because in chapter 4 we discover we gaze on Jesus and then we die like Jesus. Chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. Paul explains how he conducts his new covenant ministry. He says it's amazing. God's been so merciful to me. You know, I was a, a sinner. I was persecuting him. And not only did he forgive me, but he's given me this ministry, the best ministry of the world, of, if you like, taking people up to see the view. Of proclaiming this new covenant. And basically, Paul conducts his ministry. The essence of what Paul does is this. He preaches Jesus from the word of God. It's not that complex. doesn't want to distort the word of God. Rather, he wants to preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And the reason he preaches Jesus Lord is, well, because of what we've seen. People need to see Jesus. Because the goal, verse 6, is to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. How do you see the majestic God who made the universe? How do you know the one who made you in the face of Christ? It's as we see Jesus, as God opens our eyes to see Jesus, we see the glory of God. And Paul says that's the great privilege of being a Christian. The great privilege of being a Christian is God has put within our hearts a knowledge of God's glory, his majesty, how through Jesus. But the thing that God has done, verse 7, is he's put this treasure, this ability to see the greatest thing in the universe, he's put this treasure in jars of clay. If we're Christians, we are people who know the best thing in the world. We know God through Jesus. And we're also people with weak bodies. We're people who get sick. We're people who get tired and weary. We're people who face mental health issues. We're people with difficult family situations. We're people who cry. We're people who are basically pretty fragile. And my guess is for most of us in the room, I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to tell you you're fragile. You know that. Even if, to be honest, we've managed to put on an appearance in front of other people, 
often we know some of the challenges, some of the pain that goes on within. And God deliberately does that. God deliberately does that. Do you ever think, God, I'd be much more useful to you if I didn't have these health issues? Or God, I'd be much more useful to you if I wasn't quite so shy? Or, or God, I'd be so much more useful to you if, if I could just shake the sort of anxiety that keeps dragging me down? And Paul says, no, no. No, you're more useful to God with that weakness than without it. Because God puts his treasure in jars of clay and people who get sick and fragile and cry to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Do you want to imagine super-Christian with me? Super-Christian's brilliant. Super-Christian has got every gift going. Super-Christian knows the answer to any question that comes up. Super-Christian doesn't really need to sleep very much because he's totally full of energy. Super-Christian is gloriously charismatic so that everybody is drawn to him. And people think, gosh, super-Christian's amazing. And super-Christian begins to think, yeah, I am. And that's why God doesn't make super Christians. He puts his treasure in jars of clay. So that actually when we do stuff that's useful, and when God uses us for good in people's lives, people think, good grief, God can even use them. Isn't God great? That's how God does it. He deliberately puts his treasure in jars of clay to show that the power is from God and not from us. And he says, this is what it will look like. What will it look like to be this fragile, great glory of God in Jesus, and yet in bodies that are so weak? It means we're hard-pressed on every side. Do you ever feel like life is so busy and there's so many pressures, it just feels like the walls are closing in on you? And you just feel hard-pressed. You don't know how to keep going. Or... You're perplexed. Do you ever get yourself into the position where you think, God, I just don't quite know what you're doing? You're why have I got to face another pain on top of the ones I'm already experiencing? Or God, why won't you sort out that situation? Do you ever end up perplexed? Persecuted. Or maybe it's small fry for us compared with other parts of the world, but... For those of you who are perhaps the only Christian in your family, you'll know something of that. Struck down. I just don't know whether I can keep going. And Paul says jars of clay will experience stuff like that. And yet you notice in each of them there's a but. Hard pressed but not crushed. Somehow despite the pressure, somehow the Lord enables us to keep going and wanting us to serve him. Perplexed. Yeah, we don't quite know what God is in doing, and yet not in despair because we know God is like Jesus, and we know He's good, and we know He's wiser than us. So sometimes when we're perplexed, somehow we don't need to give up because we can trust God in the end. Persecuted, we feel like we're the only Christian in our family, and yet not abandoned because right at that moment, God says, I am with you. You're not on your own. Struck down. And yet not destroyed, still there's the ability to keep going and keep pressing on and keep persevering. 
And the Christian experience will be to say, it's hard at times, I feel like a jar of clay, and yet to be able to say, but, but. Seems to me that is actually the Christian distinctive in hard times. What makes a Christian distinctive in the way in which we face hard times? It isn't that the hard times don't hurt us, they do. It isn't that we don't face the hard times, we do. It's just that the Christian is the one person able to say in the hard times, but. But there is another perspective here. But the suffering that I'm facing is not the only reality going on. Hard-pressed but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. Hudson Taylor. Sorry, had to appear. His early days as a missionary in China were really hard. Again, I think years before he saw somebody become a Christian. On his own. In a culture that he didn't know often lonely. It's fascinating reading some of the early prayer letters that he sent back. He says this, my need now is great and urgent, but God is great and more near. Don't you love that? Isn't that Christian? He's not denying that it's really, really tough, but God, but God or, or again, pray for us. At times I seem altogether overwhelmed with the internal and external trials connected with our work. But he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. But, but this is what God has said. You see, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is jars of clay and yet God keeps us going. Come on, this passage means the world to me. Remember my first taste of Christian leadership happened to be when I was a, a student. And partly I felt the pressure of that. It was the time when I was just beginning to wrestle with some of the, the personal issues around sexuality that I've spoken about before. And it got to the stage where I just thought, I can't do this anymore. What saved me actually was it was pre-technological time. So I, I wrote my letter of resignation on a bit of paper, put it on my desk, and it happened to be a Sunday morning, and so I went to church just because that's what I did, even though I didn't really want to go. And the sermon that I heard this morning was that morning was 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Oh, that sense of weakness I feel, that's what I'm supposed to feel. That sense of I feel out of my depth at times, that's what I'm supposed to feel. This isn't something that means I shouldn't do ministry. This is what I'm supposed to feel. So I went back and tore the letter up. Probably 2 Corinthians 4 kept me in Christian ministry, actually. And it probably has a number of times over the years. Uh, and whether actually for us that's formal Christian ministry or just the kind of stuff we want to help with in our churches or just our attempts to witness where we feel so weak as we do it at times. Paul says, feel hard-pressed, that's normal. That's what it's supposed to look like. Because, and here we are actually getting to the theme we're supposed to be looking at, that is the way that we're made to be like Jesus. Verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's describing what the Christian life is like for him. And do you notice in those verses, let me cheer you up, three times he says, it is just like death. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. We're being given over to death. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Death is at work in us. There is always a kind of death in being a Christian. Haven't we seen that again and again this weekend, actually? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Go and carry a cross. What does it mean to love like Jesus? Lay down your life. What does it mean to suffer like Jesus? Well, consider his road to the cross. What does it mean to be made like Jesus? Death is at work in us. I missed this quote yesterday, actually. Again, it's John Stott, that church leader from the last century, said this, the greatest single secret of evangelism or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. Actually, the thing that actually will enable us to be a witness will be that willingness to die to popularity. The thing that will enable us to be really effective within our churches and displaying the love of Christ will be that willingness to die to our comfort as we love each other. And we die as we face the reality of being hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. Paul says there is always a death going on. A death as we carry the cross. A death as we lay down our lives in love. A death as we suffer injustice. A death as God uses the fact that we're jars of clay. There is always a death going on. And that death, as we do that, will be a death to our pride, a death to our self-reliance, a death, death to our arrogance, a death to our comfort. And yet, you notice what Paul says? We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed. We're always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. I wish I could say to you, it is possible to become like Jesus without a kind of death. But Paul says the path to being like Jesus goes through death. A death to our comfort, a death to an ease, a death that involves suffering. That's the way to become like Jesus. But isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it if we want to be like him? When I talked about jars of clay and stuff that make us cry, I guess for many of us in the room will be certain things that come to mind. And this is hard to say, and believe me, I've had to wrestle with it. But I think this is saying, don't resent those things. Don't resent those things. Because they are the very things that God will use to make you more like Jesus. Because that's the way we become like him. If we're following a suffering saviour, we will only become like him as we go through times that are tough. But that's the way we influence the communities around us. Do you notice how it goes on, verse 12? Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Do you see the logic of this passage? Paul's being given over to death as he suffers, as he faces hardship, as he's a jar of clay. 
And as he's been given over to death, he becomes more like Jesus, verses 10 and 11. And as he becomes more like Jesus, so actually the Corinthians see something and they come to life, verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. In other words, the pattern, friends, is we will face death-like experiences we follow Jesus and carry across. But that will mean we will be more like Jesus, and that will mean we will be more effective in reaching the areas we live. That's the logic of it. Remember how we started this weekend. What sort of churches does the 21st century need? What sort of churches does the 21st century need? And we said... Actually, the kind of churches we need are churches that are courageous, Christ-like communities. Churches where people are becoming more and more like Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians, we've seen how that happens. It happens as we gaze on the glory of Jesus. In the midst of all the pressures of life, do whatever you can to keep reading of Jesus, singing of Jesus, thinking of Jesus, praying to Jesus. Get Jesus in front of your eyes. And we become like Jesus as we face some of the hardships of life. And in the midst of hardships of life, we say, but God. And though hard-pressed, we're not crushed. That's how we become more like Jesus. Until the day when we see him and the job's over. And we're made like Jesus forever and ever. Which will be quite good.